Philippians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. There are so many verses in these four chapters in this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians that have been become very meaningful to me, but also very helpful in me pursuing Jesus, following Jesus. Um, I, I can't say enough how much I, it means to me that we get to read the mail that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And that's what we're doing this summer. We're studying Paul's letter he wrote to the Philippians in a series, our summer series called Best Summer Ever. It doesn't really feel like the best summer ever for us, but that's exactly why we, we call it that because Paul at the time was not living his best life ever. At least that's what it looked like from the outside. People were challenging him. People were trying to go in and tell people not to listen to what he taught, don't pay attention to what he wrote. He was thrown in jail. He was beaten. He had been shipwrecked. He had lost friends. He had been sick. Like all these things are going on. And he's in quarantine. Sound familiar? Like he's locked down. And in the middle of that, he writes this letter to them with things like joy. He speaks so much about joy in Philippians. Contentment peace. And he had a secret. But Paul's secret wasn't something he tried to keep a secret. It was a secret because so many people missed it. That life isn't just about what happens to you. It's about how you respond. And not just how you respond to life or respond to others. It's how you respond to God by faith. We say around here a lot that faith is your, great, is your greatest resource, your greatest asset in life. And in this chapter that we look at today, Philippians 3, if you have a Bible, turn there and follow along. I'm going to walk you through this passage. But in Philippians 3, Paul talks about these safeguards for our faith. Listen to what he writes here in Philippians 3.1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, joy, celebrate, worship. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I think right now he thought, he's trying to get in the minds of the people he's writing to, who thought, Paul, you're in a bad spot. You're in prison. You're locked down. People are trashing your reputation. Really rejoice? He said, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. He was writing them and reminding them of things that he had already told them about having a big faith and a big God. To write the same things to you again as it is a, here's the word, safeguard for you. You know what safeguards are, right? We see them all around us right now. The, it's, the, it's the plastic shield between the, the teller at the bank. It's, it's the mask. It's the, uh, the seatbelt. It's the, it's the uh, barriers along the side of the road to keep you from going into a ditch. Like there's all these things in our life that are safeguards. And what Paul is trying to safeguard for them was their faith. Again, because faith in God is your greatest asset, and you need it so much right now in life. There's never a day that that's not true, but in this day, it seems so true. We need a big faith in a big God because we put on our faith, uh, put in faith in our circumstances, in political leaders, in, in uh, anything, our, our self, anything other than God. It'll let us down. So he says, I want to put a safeguard, so these safeguards. There are dangers to your faith you need to be aware of. And Paul knew something about that, and he's about to talk about the first one. But let me give you a little backstory first. Paul became a follower of Jesus, and we read about it in Acts. And he, he was uh, Jewish prior to that. 
He was against the Christians. He was persecuting Jesus' followers. He, he was against it. He was trying to shut it down. And in the book of Acts, Acts is the sequel to Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, and John are the four Gospels. Luke has a sequel, Acts. It's the second part of his letter. He continues writing to tell the history of the first followers of Jesus. And as he does that, and, and the first seven chapters of Acts, it goes just to the Jews. And then in chapter 8, it goes to the Samaritans. These were people that were racially and religiously mixed between Jewish and something else. And there was a lot of tension racially and religiously between Jewish people and Samaritan people. Does that sound familiar? Then, after that, and right about that time, Paul becomes a follower of Jesus. And Paul, who was this amazingly powerful, influential, and devoted Jewish follower of God, is introduced to Jesus. The one he's trying to shut down, and the Jew Jesus followers he's trying to shut down. And suddenly, people who were not Jewish started following Jesus. And in Acts 15, we're going to talk about it in a few weeks because it's a case study in how you navigate differences in belief, in race, in religion, in, in anything. We'll come back to that in Acts 15. But they have this meeting to say, what do we do about our Gentile friends who are becoming followers of Jesus? Because the Jewish followers of Jesus said, no, you have to be Jewish first. It's like your undergrad before you get your major in, in being a follower of Jesus. You have to get your undergrad in being Jewish and do all the right uh, rituals and ceremonies and uh, surgeries like circumcision and all diet and all this stuff. And so Paul is set free to preach to the Gentiles. They decide, no, let's, it's about grace. Not about what we do, but what God does. So Paul goes, goes and starts teaching to the Gentiles. In every town he went to, he would go and talk about Jesus and people would say yes. And then when Paul would leave that town, another group would come in and say, don't listen to what he said. You have to be Jewish first to follow Jesus. And the first safeguard that Paul wanted to tell them about, the first danger was this danger of legalism. Here, here's what he says in, in verse two. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He's talking about these people, the Judaizers, who would come in and say, no, you can't follow Jesus unless you're Jewish first which means you got to have all the rituals and the ceremonies and the diet and the mutilators of the flesh, circumcision. You have to have a surgery. Suddenly, they're adding a lot of stuff in there to be a follower of Jesus. For it is we who are the circumcision, who, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He said, look, being a good follower of Jesus... Being a child of God is not about a resume or a report card. It's not how many boxes you check that gets God's attention or gets God's affection. You don't have to do anything to get God to love you, to accept you, to adopt you into his family as a child of God. You have his attention and affection already. He proved it at the cross and he offered you this free gift of eternal life by faith through Christ. So all the boxes that need to be checked to be a child of God, to get into heaven, 
Jesus checked those boxes. It's not about what you do. It's about what's been done for you. But what can happen is your faith can start to think back and go, boy, I am a really good follower of Jesus. I am a really good person. Paul would say, I am a really good Jewish person. And he gives his resume next. Here's what he says next. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, basically means to think, man, I'm doing a really good job at this. God must really love me. I have more confidence, more reasons. I was circumcised on the eighth day. People of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. He kept the law, the law and the stuff they added to the letter. As far as zeal, enthusiasm, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He was like, I was the top of the class. I was the valedictorian of being a, 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 a child of Israel and a child of God. And what they did, and this is kind of what legalism is. Legalism really basically means subsetting rules instead of the relationship. Rules that we have to follow versus a relationship with Jesus. What they did at the time when Jesus show, showed up and said, no, it's not about this. They would read like we would the Old Testament. We'd read the Ten Commandments. Love God, obey the Sabbath, don't kill, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. We'd hear those things, and they'd say, okay, those are important things. That's important. So let's create some more laws to keep us not even getting close to the line of crossing it. In the end, they created 630, 613 laws to keep you from doing something. An example would be on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy was what God told us to do. Sabbath was a gift to us. They would say, you cannot pick an egg to eat on the Sabbath. You can't do that. That's work. You can't even pick, take an egg that was laid on the Sabbath and eat it. Even to this day, there are some people who really strictly try to follow a lot of these extra laws and think, what do we do need to do to keep the Sabbath? Uh, a friend of mine um, his wife was a nurse at a hospital that had a Sabbath elevator. So on the Sabbath day, if you showed up, you wouldn't have to push a button. It would just automatically stop on every floor. I hope it wasn't a really tall building. That would get uh, really frustrating. But it's like, they would basically say, let's add more laws and keep all those to keep us from following what God asked us to do. They were substituting rules for a relationship. Legalism leads to this false guilt and really a false sense of confidence because either I didn't do it perfectly, which by the way, that's really, I believe, what the Old Testament was all about. It wasn't about the stairway to heaven. It wasn't about do these things and you're in. They were signposts pointing us to Jesus and what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. But they were signposts to Jesus. So my guilt shows me I need Jesus. If I have any confidence in what I do, Paul said, it's not working. You need to safeguard your faith and think it's not about you. It's not about what you do. It's what has been done for you. Second one is the danger of worldly distraction. He says this in verse seven. So the first distraction was legalism about trying to just do my best to get God's attention that's legalism. That's not how it's done. Safeguard your faith. The second one 
It's about worldly distractions. Paul says this, whatever regains to me, you know what gains means? Whatever I thought, that's good. Whatever were gains to me, stuff, stuff that he thought was good, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What he says is, there's one thing that matters in this world, Jesus. There's one thing that should matter in my life, Jesus. He said, that's what's most important. But the danger that needs to be safeguarded here is you can get distracted. Here's how he did that in verse eight. What is more, I consider consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The things we think in life that are important, Paul would say, no, no, no. What I've learned is Jesus is always more important. And when he's in top place, top priority, when he matters most in my life, it helps me see everything else in life the correct way. And he says, and honestly, the only thing that matters to me is Jesus. For whose sake I've lost all things. He really did. He was in jail. He'd lost everything. He says, I consider them garbage. Basically, he said, everything in life that I used to think was good, good about what I did, good things that I wanted. He said, all of that is now garbage. You know what garbage, that word literally means? (laughs) It means poop. It means like whatever, like the other day, like I had to take out the trash and I've been sitting there for a while and there was something in there. I was like, oh, if you ever smelled something and it made you go, ugh, maybe gag a little. That's what that word means. Everything I used to think was important other than Jesus. Paul says, now I consider it something that when I look at my best deeds, I gag. It's garbage compared to this, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not by anything I do, but by that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's not about what you do, it's about what's been done for you by Jesus, through Jesus. And when you're in Jesus, when you're in Christ, by faith, All the boxes that were checked are credited to you. Jesus' report card becomes your report card. What Paul said, I want more than anything. If someone looks at my life, they see Jesus and my faith in Christ. And I don't want anything else to distract me. Basically, that means distraction means not seeing what's important. So what's important? Verse 10. I want to know Christ. I want to know him and I want him know, know him more and I want others to know him as well. That's what mattered to Paul. He gave his life to it. He gave his life for it. Yes, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. That sounds awesome, right? I want to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus. The same Jesus, our spirit, uh, Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. I want to know that. And participation in his sufferings. I don't know if I want that. See, I want, I want the good stuff in life. But am I willing to suffer because of my faith? Becoming like him in his death, and Paul would eventually do that. And so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. 
Paul said, I don't want any, anything to distract me, even if my very life is threatened. My life is for Christ and to help others know him as well. I want to know Christ above all and no matter what. Beware of the danger of something around you distracting you from following Jesus. It's not about legalism. It's not about following rules. It's about a relationship with Jesus. It's not about worldly distractions. There's a danger there. Be careful. Focus on Jesus and know him above all and no matter what. Here's the third danger. And this one gets me, and I think it gets a lot of us, and it's spiritual complacency. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all of this. He goes, I'm not, I'm not there yet. We talked about in Philippians 1.6 that God finishes what he started. And if I'm alive, I haven't arrived. If I'm not dead, God's not done. He's still working in my life. I've not already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. God will finish what he started and I will participate each and every day, following him each and every step to allow him to work in me. I press on to take hold that of which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus has a vision for your life of what it looks like to be mature and complete and and fully reflecting God in your life. And each and every day he's working on that. Are you each and every day surrendering your life to let Jesus work on you, in you, and through you? I promise you this, the, the, the path of following Jesus is, is difficult. And the right path is seldom the easy path. It's challenging. But in that challenge, and we live in challenging times, God is working. I promise you, God is working in you, around you, and he wants to work through you. Don't get distracted. One of the most dangerous things for a church is apathy. We lose our passion for knowing Jesus, for following Jesus, for wanting others to know and follow Jesus. Paul didn't lose that, and he gave his life at the end, and he followed Jesus relentlessly to the end. He said, I will not become complacent, apathetic, casual about my faith. I'm focused. One thing I do, I press on. I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And one of the reasons we become spiritually complacent, apathetic, is we make our lives about comfort. I want to be comfortable. One of my friends, Mark Adams, who's a basketball coach at Texas Tech, says that he believes that that the greatest growth happens in the lack of comfort, in adversity, in challenge. He goes, that's where you grow your most. Well, Paul says the same thing. Jesus' brother James says the same thing in James chapter one. When life is difficult, God may be working his most in you to help you look more like Jesus and help others know Jesus more through you. Paul said, this is my goal. And he said, I'm not gonna get comfortable in this world. And here's why. I'm not gonna make my goal to be comfortable here. I won't be complacent. Here's why. Next verse. Sorry, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So I skipped over that verse, sorry about that. He goes, that's was my focus. I won't be complacent. I won't be comfortable in this world. Why? Here's why. 
Here's the verse I wanted to cue. But our citizenship is in heaven. You know what citizenship means? It's where you belong. It's who says you're one of us. It's who you say I'm one of you. It's, it's a group that says we exist together. We belong together. It's your, it's your home. And Paul says, this world is not my home. I'm a citizen of heaven. I, I, I'm traveling. I'm not getting at home. I'm traveling by, with a suitcase because I know I'm just passing through. My citizenship is in heaven. And I, we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the, his power enables him to bring everything under his control. God's in charge. God's in control. I'm one of his kids, and I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And ultimately, in this world, God will say, time is up. But if he hasn't said that, we are here as citizens of heaven who are just guests, just visiting. And we're not tourists. We're missionaries. We're citizens of heaven that are here to be missionaries and ambassadors. Ambassadors who say, you can be a citizen of heaven too. God loves you and gave his life for you. To do that well, it requires a big faith. And I can't let legalism or just thinking, man, I'm doing a good job. It's not about report cards and resumes. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And I can't let the danger of being uh, distracted by things in this world get in the way. My focus, one thing I do, it's about Jesus. And I can't let spiritual complacency, being apathetic, get in the way. My focus is on Jesus. Knowing him and making him known. Loving God, loving people, and going into all the world and making disciples. See, Paul said, I want you to have safeguards against legalism, against worldly distractions, against spiritual complacency, because this world is not my home. If you've given a life to Jesus, you are a child of God and a citizen of heaven. And every day you're here, you're on assignment to know God, to place a big faith in a big God and help others know him and follow him. That's why we're here. Let's pray together. God, thanks that you love us. Thanks that you're for us. Thanks that your goal is to build a big faith in us because really you're the only thing in this life that when we put our faith in you, that you deliver on what you promise. Thank you that it's not about what we do, but what you have done for us. Guard us from the distractions of this world and help us not be complacent, apathetic, or casual about our faith, but to live like it's true, to live like it matters, to live like you're with us, and to live to make a difference to help others know you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.